You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Hello and welcome to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Simon London with McKinsey Publishing. Today we're going to be talking about what a wise man once called the human side of the enterprise. Specifically, we're going to be talking to the authors of a new book, one that aspires to cut through management fads and fashions to get at what really works on topics such as talent, teams, decision-making, organisational culture and change. Joining me today to discuss all this and more are Mary Meany, a senior McKinsey partner based in Paris, and Scott Keller, a senior partner based in Los Angeles. Together, they're the co-authors of the book, Leading Organisations, 10 Timeless Truths. So Mary and Scott, thanks so much for being here today. You're welcome, Simon. Thank you for having us. So I'm going to start with a, with a rather cheeky question that comes to mind whenever I talk to, to business book authors. And there are many thousands of business books published every year. So the obvious question is, why write another one? We would agree with you that there is not a need for just another business book. However, in a world where we do have such a proliferation of business books, articles, blogs, everything else management related, we believe there's a need for this business book. And the reason for that is because in a world of such free flow of information, in order to stick out what we've noticed and observed, and probably our listeners have observed too, is that you see an increasing polarization of views and kind of a ping pong back and forth. So one day, and these are literal headlines that we've read, one day you'll see focus on your strengths. That's the right thing to do as a leader. A week later, you'll see the counterbalanced article of don't focus on your strengths. So the leader in the midst of this advice is thinking, okay, well, what am I supposed to do? Do I focus on them? Do I not? Should, did I just lose the last week of my life you know, focusing on my strengths? And was that a bad thing to do? So in this increasingly polarized, free-flowing, information-based world, what Mary and I stepped back and looked at is we said, these are all really interesting ideas around topics that we learned about back in our MBA days that we've helped clients with for quite a long time and that actually there's proven tools, techniques, frameworks, etc., that help leaders in these areas that are no longer being talked about amidst the hype. And so our goal was to, on behalf of, of leaders who are looking to get cut through of all the noise that's out there and say, well, what really works? What's actually proven to work quantitatively? But it's not obvious. It's things that most leaders wouldn't already be putting into practice. I'd also add that these 10 topics weren't chosen at random. It's not a coincidence why we picked these. We actually took a bit of analysis, a bit of science, a bit of data to really try to hone in on what are those timeless topics that are most important, most relevant for leaders. We looked, for example, at all of the projects that McKinsey has done since World War II. And we looked at the most critical topics that came up over and over and over again. We looked at the questions that our consultants uh, asked into our knowledge managers and what questions kept coming up. And we looked at what was being published in the external world. And what we found was there were certainly moments in time when there were spikes on particular topics. We'd call those fads. And what we were interested in were what were the timeless topics, the topics that actually, you know, over the last 20, 40 years have really stood the test of time and that are at the core of what it means to be a great leader and great manager. Great. So we're not going to have time today to go through all 10 topics in, in detail. But Scott, maybe you could just give us, a, give us the high-level overview of the terrain here. How, how can you characterize these 10? So what these topics are is they're topics around um, three big areas. First is talent and teams. 
Second is organization design and decision making. And the third is managing culture and change. Now within each of those big buckets, those big topics, there are very specific questions that we answer. So for example, in talent and teams, the first question is, how do I attract and retain the talent I need to be successful with our business strategy? The second question is about talent development. The third question is about performance management. The fourth question is about high-performing teams. And together that creates this section around talent and teams and you get both the, how do I get the right you know, players on the court, so to speak, and if I use the Michael Jordan quote, you know, talent wins games but teamwork wins championships, we also get to how they work together. Then in the section on um, design and decision making, there's three specific topics we address there. First is, how do I get higher quality and higher speed decision making to happen in my organization? Second is, how do we reorganize ourselves to capture maximum value? And the third is, how do we reduce overhead costs sustainably? This topic of bureaucracy and complexity and, and cost building up over time, it's something that not only plagues organizations, but civilizations. Um, there's a lot of writers and thinkers who would go back to the fall of great empires and say it was less about a, a new invading army and more about the weight of the bureaucracy collapsing in upon itself. And then we get to our last section, which is the, the topics of culture and change management. And in that arena, we talk very specifically about how do you make your company's culture a competitive advantage? How do you make change happen at scale? We call that a performance transformation, but at an enterprise level, how do you really move an enterprise to go from what we would say becoming a bigger, fatter caterpillar, so to speak, to going truly caterpillar to butterfly? And then the last topic is more personal. It's how do I successfully transition into a new executive role? By some estimates, 8,000 executive transitions at the CEO, CEO minus one or CEO minus two level every year in Fortune 500 companies. This is a big deal. And by the way, 40% of those are considered not successful by people who placed those in those positions. Those are, again, the 10 timeless topics that we feel like we've given very practical, proven but not in practice, things for leaders to know will be successful, not to um, kind of chase the, the next shiny object in these spaces. The obvious pushback here is the questions may indeed be uh, timeless, uh, I get that, but surely the answers to these questions are highly context dependent, not just across history, but across cultures as well. What works in the German Mittelstand may not work for a big US financial institution. So Mary, how do you think about that? Yes, we do see some differences. Uh, one of the tools that we use, for example, is something called the Organizational Health Index which gives a bit of an MRI or an, or an X-ray, an incredibly detailed scan of where an organization is and how healthy it is. And we do see differences across cultures. So on average, Americans will tend to be a little bit more positive than, say, the French. Having said that, when we look at some of what it takes to really succeed and thrive, what it takes to make change happen, what it takes to create a sense of meaning and purpose, actually, there's a lot more commonality than you would expect um, across the different cultures. So to give one example, we, um, one of the things we dived in on is to look at you know, how to create a sense of meaning and purpose. People go to work for a number of different reasons. Um, it can be because of a, a real sense of mission and society, that would be one. A second would be a desire to make their company, their organization, the leader in their industry and see their company succeed and thrive. A third one would be about customers and really trying to satisfy and delight customers. A fourth sense of purpose or meaning might be working with really high-performing teams, the people that you work with on a day-to-day -day basis. And a fifth would be yourself, right? Your 
personal uh, career development, uh, financial rewards, recognition. And what we find across cultures is that by and large, populations actually split into broadly those five different sources of meaning. And it's not to say that one's right and another's wrong, but rather some of the things that we have found are more universal truths because of who we are as human beings. And I think one of the insights that we wrote about is a lot of times CEOs, senior executives, leaders will talk about the what and the how, and all too often they forget the why. And so bringing in that sense of meaning and purpose and acknowledging the fact that we're all different. And therefore, it's not just about telling one story, but about appealing to all five of the different sources of meaning is one way of really creating something powerful that gets employees to, to go to that extraordinary effort. We were working with a mortgage company in the United States, and it was a situation where they were, I mean, a classic business turnaround situation where revenues are going kind of flat and costs are going up, and these two lines are going to cross, and the company's going to be in trouble. So what do they do? They create a cost reduction program. And this cost reduction program they created was pretty robust in terms of the things they needed to do. They needed to centralize, they needed to standardize, a whole set of um, things, overhead cost reduction, etc. Now what happened with the CEO was he put in place this program and didn't see any results. So costs kept creeping up, the revenue line stayed where it was, and they were closer to the end, essentially. That's when we got involved, and we, we used this particular situation as an opportunity to test what Mary was talking about. And what we did is we went and we looked at the communications, and the communications were very much, as Mary put it, the company story. It's, hey, our costs are raising at too great a rate versus our revenues. And we said, let's talk about the other four sources of meaning. At the same time, it is a cost reduction program, but why are we doing it? Why are we doing it? Well, first of all, if you think about the society mission part of the world, we're a mortgage company. We put people into homes. If we do this, we're going to be able to put more people into homes, make more people's dreams come true. We're going to be able to bring families together, because where do families meet other than in the home? And there's a bigger story here in terms of the impact we can have on the world. Let's look at the impact on the customer. What is great cost reduction if not making things simpler, if not reducing errors? if not streamlining things. We're going to be able to do things faster on behalf of the customer with fewer errors in a way that's going to delight our customers if we get this right. Similarly with the team idea, and I won't go through all the detail here, but the idea of people coming together, working together for one plus one equals three was part of it. And then at the individual level, wow, what a unique opportunity as a leader to learn an entire new turnaround skill set that whether you're in this company or not is going to be setting you up to have more success, more impact in the world. So when we changed the storytelling to be around five sources of meaning rather than just one source of meaning, we both saw the run rate impact of the cost program increase. And they had a monthly kind of culture survey, if you will, or morale survey. They also saw a big uptick in the morale surveys. Now, we've since done that in multiple geographies, and it's a human thing. It's not a, am I Chinese, am I in Australia, am I in the UK, am I in France? It's a human thing when it comes down to this. Let's talk a little bit about uh, talent. You know, it, in many ways, it, it begins with bringing in and developing the right talent in, uh, in any organization. What's the timeless truth there? So in each of the chapters that we talk about, um, we talk about three particular timeless truths. The first truth I'll just, in the spirit of time, focus on is, is the notion of focusing on the 5% that create 95% of the value. Now, this is different than saying we want to attract and retain talent, and therefore we're going to fix our talent recruiting process. 
or we're going to fix our employee value proposition. Let me go to Hollywood for an example, actually, um, because the, the idea of focusing on the 5% that add 95% of the value, I think a great analogy is for those who have seen the movie The Blind Side with Sandra Bullock, and obviously many of our listeners around the world won't have seen that, so just quick synopsis is it, it, it's a movie that talks about American football. And the reason it's called The Blind Side is based in how American football players are paid, and beneath that there's a reason for why they're paid that way, which accounts for it. But when you ask most people, and most people know enough about American football to answer this question, you ask them, who's the highest paid player on the field? Most people will say the quarterback, and they will be right. The quarterback is the one who touches the ball, makes most of the plays, is always involved in, in managing the team down the field to score points. So you ask people who is the second highest paid player on the team, and most people will choose another player who is someone who touches the ball often and helps move it down the field, whether it's the running back, the wide receiver, and they'd be wrong. And they'd be wrong because it turns out the second highest paid player is, is what's called the, the left tackle, especially with a right-handed quarterback, or it could be the right tackle with a left-handed quarterback. And the reason for that is the role of the left tackle is to block the person who's coming and trying to tackle your quarterback who very easily could cause an injury because that person is coming to the quarterback's blind side, as it is. So this is a very important position that most people would say, that's not obvious to me that we need to recruit a great left tackle, and we're going to pay them the second most on the team. And so what we found is when organizations talk about who are our quarterbacks, who are, our, who are the people who play the roles on our team that create the most value, they often get it wrong, and they often get it wrong because they forget to take into account those roles and positions that kind of protect the value, so to speak. So if I give an example, you know, in the, the U.S. Navy and you've got a nuclear submarine, you're going to want to have a great commander of that submarine. No doubt that's the quarterback. You also are going to want to have a great ship-bound IT manager to manage IT outages. Because if you have a technology failure on a nuclear sub, that's a big problem. And so this is a really important position that may otherwise be missed when we think about where are we sourcing our best talent. If you go to big retailers, it's not necessarily the people running the big box stores. It's the people who are the omni-channel merchants who are ensuring the product that's available in the stores and online is um, such that you can work across channel as a customer and have a seamless experience. If you're a logistics company, it's your logistics engineers. It's not just the people who are handling the packages and making sure they get A to B. So one of the things that we're doing to try to bring some of these insights to life is work with companies to really get a handle on who are their critical roles and the talent in those critical roles. And what we're trying to do is put a lot more rigor and structure and analysis and evidence. So very much starting from the overall strategy, where value is created, or needs to be protected, and translating that value agenda into what's the set of critical roles. It could be 40 or 50, it could be a bit more than that, but it's unlikely to be thousands. What are the most critical roles that really create that value? And they're not always the most senior hierarchically. Sometimes they are, but they can easily be one, two, three, four levels down in the organization. And understanding what those roles are and then putting a lot more rigor into, well, what's the work that has to get done? What do we need these people to actually do in order to create that value? and then looking at whether you've got a good match. So let me give you an example of one of the Scandinavian companies I'm working with. Fundamental to their strategy is growing their business in China. And 
a lot of that is based on mergers and acquisitions and new business development. So one of the critical roles, about a billion associated with it, is their head of China. A second critical role is their CFO in China. What's interesting though is when we then looked at who they had in that specific role, it was someone who was really good at cost cutting, but had no business development or M&A experience. So there was a clear disconnect. And having those kinds of conversations to really make sure that you actually are very clear on what is that 5% of roles that really disproportionately create value, and do you really have the people with the knowledge, the skills, the aptitude, the experience to actually deliver that is one of the things that we're seeing really sets companies up for success. Okay, you got your talent in the organization, you're focusing on the top roles. How do you manage performance? As you said in a little earlier, Scott, uh, this is something that generates a lot of noise around things like stack ranking systems and uh, forced ranking systems and so on. What are the timeless truths here around performance management? What works? As you said, Simon, this is definitely a hot topic. Over the last few years, we've seen lots of headlines with very high-profile companies announcing that they were abandoning their performance management system or eliminating ratings entirely. So we actually looked uh, and, and did a, a very careful research effort um, at this specifically to try to understand, well, what, what do we believe? What do we think is actually the right answer? And how do you actually manage and optimize performance across your, your broader employee base? And there were a couple of things that came through. Uh, one thing that was interesting was many of those companies that had very publicly abandoned their systems were actually coming back to them or introducing shadow ratings. Because at some fundamental level, employees actually want to know where they stand and they want to know how they're doing. And so where we came out is you still want to keep ratings, but you probably want to simplify them. So you want to make sure that you don't have the 41-point scale that one of our high-tech companies has or the 46-point scale that a UK public institution has. You probably want to be somewhere in the zone of three to five. The second thing that we found was the importance of decoupling, because all too often organizations tend to mix everything up. So they'll tell people once a year how they're doing, what their rating is, how much money they're going to get, and their development, right? Their strengths and their development needs. Unfortunately, for most employees, what they tend to over-index on is what's the number? What's my rating? What's my bonus? How much am I going to get paid? And they often don't really integrate and understand all the feedback around how they're doing and how they can develop and how they can achieve their full potential. So what we strongly recommend is to decouple those conversations, decouple them in time. So yes, you still have an administrative process to tell people how they're appraised and whether they're getting promoted and how much they're going to get paid. But importantly, what you want to do is really invest in the ongoing developmental conversations, giving people feedback, giving them coaching, making sure that they really understand the strengths they have they should be leveraging, and developing them to their full potential. Whenever I, I hear people talk about organization design, the thing that comes to mind are the lines and the boxes of the reporting and the, the so on. I suspect it's a similar lesson, isn't it? That actually fixating on those things is, uh, you know, is only part of the story, put it that way. That's exactly right. Um... And you know, I would use the analogy of back pain, of lower back pain on this one. And I'm actually someone who suffered lower back pain, so I've, I've known this well in my life, but I'm not alone. One in 10 people in the world suffers from lower back pain. It causes more disability in the workplace than over 300 other conditions that they catalog. So this is like a, a big deal thing, but the interesting thing is when you say, well, what's the cause? It's pretty nebulous. It's pretty unclear to those who have lower back pain when they go to a doctor to get a clear-cut diagnosis. Some people get a structural diagnosis. You have a, a spinal stenosis or abnormal facet joints or whatever it might be. Other doctors will give more of a soft tissue 
diagnostic. Oh, it's a herniated disc, it's a strained lumbar muscle, it's a pinched sciatic nerve, tendonalgia, whatever it might be. And there's still a whole nother body of thinking that was uh, popularized by a, a gentleman named Dr. Sarnow, which talks about the mind-body link. And it's actually a very psychological thing that's happening with our lower backs, that it's, it's us kind of trying to draw our attention away from unexpressed anger. And so it's got an emotional core. And so what's really the answer? Well, we don't really know, but we know it's not just one of these. And we also know that it's not just the structural ones. In fact, the, the data says that the surgery to address structural issues for lower back pain is successful about 26% of the time, whereas more of the physiotherapy, psychological interventions, about 76% of the time. And I think that analogy for us works well for organization design because there's a lot of things structurally that can be changed, that can be noted as, hey, that's what's holding us back. That's what's making us slow, bureaucratic, hierarchical, etc. It's lines and boxes. It's roles and responsibilities. It's governance. It's the boundaries we draw, the location of our corporate center, etc. That's important stuff, but most people, when they think org design, just go after that. We advocate that any org design work that's done focuses across three big categories of things. Structural things, process things, and the people or culture things. Those who do have upwards of an 80% chance of success, and those who focus just on structural issues have about a 23% success rate. One of the leading pharmaceutical companies created a new strategy, and they knew that they had to redesign their organization in order to achieve the full potential from that strategy. And they also knew that if they were really going to be successful, they had to look at it holistically. So yes, they were going to redesign the structure, and they actually created new structural units, new roles. But importantly, they didn't just stop at structure. They also looked at some of the critical processes, how they needed to change their strategic planning and their budgeting processes. They actually changed their performance management processes, changed all the incentives to actually create really strong incentives for everyone in the organization to help grow these new businesses, regardless of what their current position was. And then, of course, they looked at the people. They looked at the capabilities that they needed to either acquire from the market or that they needed to build internally. And the combination of all three of those things proved incredibly powerful in helping them achieve a different organization that actually supported and enabled their strategy. So that's great. And one of the things that strikes me here is a lot of things that we're talking about, uh, whether it's organizational redesign or performance management, bringing in new systems and so on, a lot of this is, is change. Um, you know, organizations are always having to, to change. So what's our timeless truth around change management? One of the pieces of research that I personally found really fascinating, though, was actually not changing organizations, but changing individuals. Because organizations don't change, people change. And it's when you get a critical mass of people who are willing to change their behaviors that you actually start to see those organizational transformation. And so we asked ourselves, well, what makes individuals change their behaviors, especially deeply rooted, deeply anchored behaviors? And we found uh, a fascinating research that was done in the US on the West Coast in which that was exactly at the heart of the problem, how to get heart patients to actually change their behaviors. And the context was um, a group of researchers where the heart patients had one or more of five pretty serious behavioral issues. They ate too much, drank too much, smoked too much, had too much stress in their lives and didn't exercise enough. Hopefully nothing that anyone recognizes. But as a direct consequence of those behaviors, they had serious heart disease, which led to a major coronary bypass operation. And statistically, in the next five years, if they didn't change their behaviors, they would die. The statistics, the research was overwhelming. 
So the doctors told the patients, you know, change or die. This is the ultimate burning platform. This isn't like life or death. This genuinely is life or death. But what was horrifying was that actually, even faced with that ultimate burning platform, only 10% of those heart patients were actually able to change their behaviors in a sustainable way. So that's the bad news. The good news is that the researchers said, we've got to do something different. We have to find some other approaches. We have to figure out you know, how we can actually change the odds. And so they actually developed an integrative, comprehensive program that pulls on the four levers that we believe are most critical to really get sustainable, successful behavioral change. So the first thing they did was had a compelling story. They really kind of worked on creating understanding and conviction, and not just the what and the how, but the why. And it wasn't just a burning platform. They also created a positive vision of the future. So if you change your behavior, you'll be able to walk your daughter down the aisle when she gets married. You'll see your son graduate from college. So they created a very positive change story, as well as being honest with people that if you don't change, then you will die. The second thing that they did was they actually created reinforcing mechanisms. They had people meet regularly. They actually set targets. They monitored and measured those targets. The third thing is that they taught them skills. Many of these people actually didn't know how to quit smoking. They didn't know how to cook in a healthier or different way. They, didn't, they needed to be taught meditation techniques, exercises that they could do that was compatible with their heart condition. So there was a whole element around actually creating the skills and capabilities that they needed in order to change their behavior. And then the fourth was role modeling. They brought in people from the previous group, from the 10% who had successfully changed, people just like them, who came back and shared their experiences and gave them hope and confidence. And so what we find in, in our work across organizations is that in order to get organizations to change, you have to get individuals to change. And in order to get individuals to change, you need all four of these elements. So sadly, I think we're out of time for today. But Mary Meany and Scott Keller, thanks once again for coming in. And thanks for the fun discussion. Thanks to you, our audience, for listening. To learn more about the book, Leading Organizations, 10 Timeless Truths, you can find it through your favorite bookstore, or you can find out more about it and about our work and organization more generally on mckinsey.com. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.